You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I want to invite you to open up to Genesis 29 uh, for our passage this morning. We're going to read from verse 31 into Genesis 30, verse 24. Uh, We've had the delight of preaching through Genesis in our church. Uh, The Lord has been kind, and our church has been patient with me. Uh, We are nearing two years next month in this book. And God willing, by November, we're hoping to wrap it up. But it's been good for us. And I pray that the Lord would make it good for you today. And so read with me as we look at this text together. Genesis 29, starting in verse 31. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. And she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I'm not hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attracted to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God? who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here's my servant, Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him, her servant, Bilhah, as a wife. And Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpha and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpha bore a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpha bore a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to her, Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? 
Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I, have, I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Now Leah conceived again and she bore a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with good endowment and I, my husband, will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would take the reading of your word and that through your spirit that you would minister to each one of us now, that you give us ears to hear and hearts to believe, that you would receive glory and we would increase in joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Living for the affection and approval of others often leads to dangerous paths in life. And it may take many years before we come to this painful realization. Sometimes we do this at great costs without thinking about the long-range effects. You see, such a life clearly misses the way of faith, what God himself has prescribed for us. As we approach this passage, we would be helped to keep something in mind. As we read narratives in in the passages in the Bible, it is helpful for us to remember that sometimes God prescribes what we need to understand, obey, and do. And sometimes the Bible proscribes, forbidding us to do these things, what we ought not to do. And in other times, God describes what's going on. It is a description for us to observe and even learn from. So just to be clear about today's text, it is a description, not a prescription for family life. It's a description of a terrible family mess for us to observe and think deeply about in what God is saying and doing. You see, in the story, it is easy to note the bad and miss the good. We want to observe the bad and see the good that God is doing. So I want to walk you through both the chaos of a man-centered living and the grace of God's overriding intervention in this story. If you don't see both at work, then we fail to learn the lesson intended for us 
So here's the main point that I want to set before you that I trust this text emphasizes. And we're going to see some observations on how that makes this clear. And that's this. Self-dependency leads to turmoil, but divine grace redeems even the gravest situations. We have self-dependency on the side of us, and we have divine grace that comes from God. On the one hand, sin seems to increase, but on the other hand, the plan of God seems to move forward. It is a wonderful reality. In fact, there seems to be a growing intensity and frustration between the three main characters here, the sisters and Jacob. As that is increasing, at the same time, God's plan is making progress. That is a lesson in itself to behold. You see, just to give you some context here, it's hard to just parachute into a text, but Genesis 29 In the previous section, in the the first part of it, we saw that God who loves is also the God who disciplines us for our unresolved sins. You see, but God disciplines us with the end in mind. Jacob was a deceiver. He ran away from his brother. And he meets Laban and he thinks life will be good. And yet Jacob gets a taste of his own medicine by being deceived by his uncle and father-in-law. And yet, God is using this as a way to restore him, as a way to make Jacob useful. Jacob will enjoy God more. He will better understand what God is doing. But now, it's confusing. We can note that sin has consequences. This is a, it's something for us to be mindful. Sin has consequences, but it can never defeat God's purposes. And that's going to be a reality in this passage. So as we pick it up from here, we're going to see the consequence of sin and the divine grace that redeems it. You see, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, but he got cheated, ended up getting his sister. But we read in Genesis 29, verse 30, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. This meant that one sister was oppressed and the other was loved. That's hard. Being married to two women does not just make life impossible in pleasing one over the other. It goes against God's plan to spend our lives with one. Yet in this very situation, we see God at work. We actually see justice, grace, and mercy at work. So let me give you the first point here. The justice of God provides a blessing to the oppressed. We see that in Genesis 29, 31 to 35. Jacob had the example of Adam and Eve in marriage. It is where God's plan was for one man and one woman to become one flesh in marriage. There was no third person. Anytime someone comes in between a marriage, between a man and a woman, it creates a sense of rivalry and insecurity. We clearly see this in this passage. From that we learn something about marriage, that marriage really only works well when you feel safe in the affections and the interest and the allegiance of your spouse. When something is in between or someone is in between, it is not safe, good, or healthy. So marriage was never intended to have a rival with another. In any situations, when we disregard God's plan, 
we will sooner than later feel the misery of sin. So look with me to verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. Now, the word hated here doesn't mean that Jacob despised her. Rather, it's better understood that he loved her less than Rachel, which is understandable. A good example is Luke 14, 26. The Lord Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He's not telling them, hate them by despising them. He's saying, you must love these things less than me. You must love me more. I must be your primary affection. And so, in that sense, Jacob loved Rachel more and her sister less. And she felt it. And that would have been painful. Even if he wanted to love them equally, He couldn't. God did not create us that way. It would be severely flawed. You see, the women would have to keep their feelings in check, emotions and affections at the door. They would have to check that and act like robots. But the reality is that they're not robots. They're women made in the image of God, equal in worth, in value, and dignity, stuck in a very difficult situation. So no one feels well-loved, and the one feels well-loved and the other feels less loved. Again, in the first book of the Bible, we don't have to look far to understand the implications of sin and brokenness. Once we hit to chapter 3 of Genesis, it's right there for us. The human tendency is to favor one person over the other, and it frequently causes tension. It happens in our parenting, over one child, over the other sometimes. And in such circumstances, God can and does act on behalf of the oppressed. What does God do? He enables her to conceive children. And Leah conceived and bore a son, verse 32, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, now my husband will love me. So it is noteworthy that her sense of worth is misplaced. She's hoping that Jacob would love her more now, that she'll be more attracted in his eyes. He'll spend more time with her. And she ends up having four sons. Now, that is a lot of agony to go through to gain a man's affection. This is evident even in the names she gives her sons. Think about it. Reuben means the Lord sees my affliction because she was loved less. And then verse 33, um, Simeon, meaning the Lord hears because she was hated. It says the Lord uh, heard that I was, I'm hated for he has given me his son also. And then in verse 34, Levi, meaning hope for attachment. She wants to be attached to Jacob and she's feeling the distance. She wants him to be drawn to her. And she says, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have born three sons. See, Leah must learn that it is only through the Lord that her identity can be truly established. She bears Jacob one son after another. She seeks to use her childbearing as a way to get Jacob to love her. Now this time, she says, my husband will be attached. 
She's building her identity on her husband's love for her instead of on the Lord's love for her. But then something happens to her after her fourth son. If you look with me to verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord Yahweh. Therefore, she called his name Judah, praise for the Lord. That's what that means. Then she ceased bearing. You see, with the fourth son, something happened. I'd like to think that divine grace broke through. This time, her fundamental affections is being redirected now because she's praising the Lord. The first three was about her husband. Maybe he'll love me more. Maybe I'll be drawn to him. But now she's being drawn to the Lord, her God, and she praises him. We're not told what led her to make this confession, but I would like to think that the Lord is changing her sense of worth from looking horizontally to her husband to now looking vertically to God. Yesterday morning or afternoon, I had the joy of marrying off a sweet couple in our church. And in that moment, we reminded them that you will be tempted to look at each other for fulfillment, for value. But if you keep doing that, you will frustrate each other. You will let each other down. You must incline your heart vertically to God to find your worth, your value, your dignity, your identity. Only then can you better appreciate, serve, love, and care for each other. And it serves as a reminder for all of us, whether we're single or married, that we collectively need to look to the Lord, for that will be medicine for our soul in the most difficult of circumstances. It took Leah having four kids to confess that. Now, you may be thinking, what does this story got to do with us? After all, this is not your life story, and I hope it's not. What does it have to do? The point is this. We too easily place our identity and value in the wrong things. For Leah, it was trying to get her love of her husband and maybe by having more kids. I have listened personally to a number, I've read and listened to women who've talked about how their husband's first love is their career. Or some men, they say their husband's first love is their car or their hobby. And some of them come from Christian families. They're practicing Christians. These things have a way of becoming rivals in marriages. I remember growing up, my mom would joke like that. I come from a Hindu family, and she would say, you know, your dad loves the car more than me sometimes. And that could be true in various ways. There are things in our lives that become rivals in our marriages, in our relationships, because we give it undue attention and affection, and it fails us, and it leaves us high and dry. And we fail in our affections, in our duty for our marriages and our families. When we take our eyes off the Lord, we become independent, 
self-dependent and you become self-destructive in the long run. We can end up loving something too much, end up making an idol out of it. And there we derive our value from it. You know, we can also end up loving something less than we should have and devalue that gift that God has given us. In this case, it could be a spouse. Ephesians 5 reminds me that I need to love my wife in a certain way. It's a high calling. When I'm not seeking that, I love her less and I'm sinning. So the obvious application that I get from here is this, that we must look to the God who made us and saves us for our identity and our worth. I got to start there. That that's the one that gives me identity, for that is the one that gives me worth. Nothing else does. Not me being a husband or a father or a pastor. None of them do. Anything else becomes really a functional idol that leaves me and us high and dry. But when we look to the God who saves us, because he loved the unloved, he sees the agony of Leah. And she becomes the mother of the first tribal leaders of Israel. Just think about it. Even though she's suffering, she gives birth to the first four tribes of Israel. Friends, this is nothing new. When we, again, place our value and identity in achievements or success or in people, that's what sin does to our hearts. We make something good, the greatest, and we value it. But God wants us to stop and think about the consequences of placing any of his good gifts above him. Whether it's success, whether it's marriage, whether it's the affections of people, children, recognition, whatever it may be. You know, when Leah gave birth to her fourth son, Judah, she praised the Lord. Well, he's the one through whom the promises of blessing to the nations will finally be fulfilled. If you go back to Genesis 12, God tells Abraham that I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations and wonder, how is this going to progress? Well, Leah's fourth kid. She's saying, praise the Lord. At the end of Jacob's life in Genesis 49, 10, Jacob says this when he's speaking to Judah. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So in our suffering, God is progressing his promise of blessing. From this, what Jacob says in Genesis 49, we learn that the line of Judah will be the one who will be praised by others, who will prove triumphant over his enemies, like a lion. He will rule eternally, and the nations will submit to him. It's a hard moment, but a wonderful promise. All of these marks come to be true in the one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Messiah, the anointed son of David, who comes from this very line of Judah. You just turn to Matthew 1 and you see that being traced down. You see, God in his justice provides blessing for Leah and moves her soul to praise him. Rachel is barren, but Leah has four sons in rapid succession. The record of these births is sad because of her condition, that she's loved less. But the underlining message is that God was building his nation 
it provides consolation to her. Secondly, as we move into chapter 30, we see our second observation. That's this. The first one we saw that that the justice of God provides a blessing to the oppressed. And secondly, we see the grace of God blesses his people despite our broken ways. That the grace of God blesses his people despite our broken ways. We see that in the first 13 verses of chapter 30. You know, if there was a place where we see a type of surrogate mothers, it's in this chapter. Verse one and two, and Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children. And she envied her sister and said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. What a serious request. And Jacob's response is very much warranted. He says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of your womb? So Jacob is angry at his first love for sounding like he was holding back. You know, Jacob could have learned from his father Isaac who prayed to God for help when Rebekah was barren. But he did not. He simply says, I'm not God. In desperation, in verse three, Rachel resorts to another idea to have children through her maid, Bilhah, a substitute wife. So he offers her Bilhah says, go into her says, she may give birth on my behalf that I might have children through her. And so Jacob receives her. Now, this was a common practice of near ancient East culture. Couples who were childless would seek a substitute or a second wife. That child that would be born would be considered theirs. But there's only one problem. Jacob's already got two wives. And they already got children. So this helps us think through the messiness of the situation. And when Bilhah has children, Jacob uh, names the boy Dan, meaning judge, and the second one, Naphtali, meaning wrestling. In this way, the continuity of the family line is preserved because it's now through Bilhah. It's, it's complicated situations. The thing is this, as if having two wives was not enough, Jacob now has a third one. Things just got more complicated. And that always happens when we depend on our own ways and not God's ways. What may seem like a good, quick solution to a desperate attempt for value often brings unintended consequences. And that's been true in my own life. There are times where I've sought a quick solution and later on, I'm repenting because it's brought unintended consequences. And when it affects family life, it just lingers for a while, sometimes a long time, and it's painful. And it affects those around me, and here it does as well. So here's an application for us. Never replace dependence on God with human schemes. You know, when I make a decision, I don't say, oh, this is case advanced scheme. It's often complicated. And what I also trace back is there's less prayer and more me trusting in my own ideas, me running to a quick solution. But when I'm taking time to pray, seeking godly counsel, I often am reminded of what is human schemes and what is the wisdom of God in this situation. And here we see a lot of human schemes. 
And it complicates things and it brings further sin and brokenness. Now, if you're not a Christ follower, friend, I'm glad you're here this morning. We are reminded from this narrative that it is not in us to save ourselves from our own ways. We naturally follow our own desires and our own ways. And this passage reminds us that we are in need of a cosmic rescue. We can keep trying new things from time to time. We can ignore the empty promises that come our way. Or we, sorry, and we, but the, the promises that come our way, but they only keep us stuck in our sinful ways. And we need a rescue. That is what sin does. It keeps us in our man-centered ways. A few years ago, if you follow basketball, um, they were interviewing Kevin Durant, one of the best players in the world. After winning a championship, he came back the next season and he was getting technical fouls and kicking out of the games and whatnot. And so ESPN interviewed him and they said, why are you so angry for? Like, you just won a championship. You were the MVP of the finals. And his answer struck me. And he said, I thought winning a championship would fill that void, but it didn't. You see, all of us have that void as sinners born into this fallen world that we chase after things that we think will give us value, fulfillment, and happiness. And maybe for that night and for that season it may. But in time we realize What's the next thing? What's the next thing? You see, like Leah, our fundamental affections need to be redirected. So if you're not seeking after the Lord, our fundamental affections is horizontal on the created things, on something or someone, even ourselves. But that only leaves us high and dry. This passage serves to remind us that our affections need to be vertically But we can't do that on our own. We can't, but God has. Because Jesus has come down to us, opened our eyes, and he's calling us to look to him. His death and his resurrection offers life for us so we can look to him and hope in him. Now, the Holy Spirit's got to convict you of that. And I pray that he is. And as that happens, may you respond and like Leah, May you praise the Lord for the first time in your lives. Friend, this church here exists to help you examine the claims of Christ, to know him who saves, who sustains, and who brings us to glory. So would you take the opportunity to have it, the most important conversation of your life, that you would deeply think about Jesus and who he is and what he has to say to you. If you're a disciple of Jesus, then attempting to resolve our shortcomings without prayer and godly wisdom only frustrates our lives. Bible does not say that our lives will be problem-free. In fact, I find it increases when we follow Jesus because the world and the philosophy around us is in the opposite direction. We're constantly trying to think through how do we respond to these things. And so we must seek. When, when, when and Rebecca was barren, Isaac prayed. His son failed to do that. In our situations, we must pray and seek godly wisdom from the word of God, but also the people that God put into our lives. And the Lord has blessed you with elders in this church. 
We seem to be too easily making so many choices in life without prayer and wisdom. Both are readily available as we seek the Lord and walk with his people. Now it seems, going back to Leah, she was not satisfied. She just saw Rachel give Bilhah. So she rips a page out of her book and says to her, hey, here's Zilpha, Jacob. Take my maid and have children with her for me. So at the beginning of this text, we found Jacob with two wives. Now he's with four. And when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing, she took her servant Zilpha and gave her to Jacob as a wife, verse 9. And there God grants her Gad and Asher. Gad meaning fortune and prosperity, Asher meaning happy. You know, one can conclude that Leah was determined to stay ahead of the game by outproducing her younger sister. It's incredible what's happening here. This is why having more than one wife is out of God's plan and dangerous. If anyone ever doubts, tell them to go read this chapter of the Bible. A woman needs to feel unrivaled in her marriage to be at peace with her husband. Because in, verse, in chapter 30, verse 7, we see that she wrestled with her sisters. Now, the, the, the thing for us as husbands is that we need to make our wives feel um, not rivaled, but also simply by, even, even if it's not another person, sometimes men can co- make comments, for example, uh, favorably at another woman's appearance. I think it's okay to say, hey, she's beautiful, but sometimes as men, we make comments that women don't, we, we don't realize how sensitive it may be to our wives or to our sisters around us. So we must think through how we even speak of things. We can even have a friend of the opposite sex where we talk about things where some men do not talk about it with their wives. I think we live in a culture where we don't see the lines being drawn clearly sometimes. Many years ago, I was sitting, when I was single, I think I was about 23, 24, a godly man, one of my mentors sat next to me, who's been married for decades at that time, and he just helped me understand the wisdom of not spending a considerable amount of time alone with the opposite sex in a friendship. He just said, when you get married, it's hard for you to flip that switch and turn that off. Sometimes even those relationships can become a rival in your future marriage. So one of the things I just did, by the grace of God, was just hang around in groups more than one-on-one. I wasn't against it, but I know if I built deep relationships, some of those things can affect our future marriages. And that's why we enjoy fellowships within the church as well as we hang, as we pray, as we talk, as we serve together. Um, again, each relationship has to be considered. And I have personally spoken to young men, even in our church, saying, consider these realities. If this relationship is going this far with you, what happens if you get married next year? Can you keep this up? And sometimes the answer is no. So you need to think about that now. Think about rivalries in our relationships. Sometimes it's people. Sometimes it's things and careers or hobbies. Because most of us do not know how to hit the off button all of a sudden. If we want peace in our homes and we want our spouse to be at rest in our marriages, then we do not create in any way or cherish a rival in our hearts against our spouse 
whom God has given us. That's why us husbands are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church, his bride. There is no rival. This is one of the lessons that we're supposed to learn from this passage. God in his grace has a way of invalidating those rivals, and we thank God for him. Now, in this last part of this passage, we see things getting worse, but God is not done. Look what happens in, verse, in, in, in verses 10, 14 to 24, and I, I, I capture the point this way. The mercy of God blesses his people by invalidating superstition and jealousy. So there's rivalry, there's contention, there's wrestling matches. Now there's superstition and jealousy as well. You know, as the years go by, it seems like the brokenness is getting worse, is getting sketchier. We see in verse 14 that Reuben, during the harvest time, comes back with mandrakes. Now, it's not something we really talk about in today's time. And Rachel says, please give me some of your uh, son's mandrakes. Uh, today's time, mandrakes would be an aphrodisiac, aid, something that aids fertility. So Rachel seems desperate and she asks for this herb so she could use it to get pregnant. Every culture has its own traditions and superstitions. Uh, some of them uh, just... F- I come from a culture that has a lot of superstitions. For example, um, in, my, in my culture, um, one of the idols is the, 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 the tone of your skin. And so when, when women are pregnant... Uh, sometimes they offer them what is called saffron. And it's considered, if you take saffron, it'll be a fairer complexion. And so when my wife was pregnant with our first son, a well-intended person from my own culture said, your wife should take this. And I said, well, thank you, but no thanks. Uh, Because we believe that God determines our height, our color, everything. Because Psalm 139 says that when we were in mother's womb, that God knit us together, every detail of us. So we don't have to lean on these. But we find that in every culture, there's some kind of superstition. So here, this aphrodisiac seems to be one of them. And it does not go well. You see, what we have to be mindful of is this, that when we look at superstitions and practices, sometimes it's a grade for centuries. It varies in form and practice. But we must understand this. No superstition can save the situation. Only God can. Only the God who saves people from every culture, every tribe, every color, and every superstition. Because God's grace and mercy transcends all of them. We lean into superstition in our broken ways because our view of God is small and weak. If I'm a Christ follower, and I'm leaning into superstition, palm reading, whatever it may be, is because my view of God is small and it's weak. It's not the God of the Bible. That's the God of my own making. This passage serves to remind us that we can all too easily go back and forth by resorting to our own ways and sometimes God's ways. That's incompatible. That will never work because this world wants you at the center, but the gospel keeps Christ at the center. It reminds us in the man-centered ways as 
she asks for the mandrake and the sister reminds her, saying, it is no small matter that you have taken away my husband, would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And look at the deal she makes. Rachel says, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. And when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. Another painful moment in this family life. First, it was Laban who went from making family bond to a commercial contract with Jacob for his daughters. Now, it's Laban's daughters who have gone from spouse to making a commercial contract to see who he may lay with. But Rachel's own means of using mandrakes does not produce fruit. It seems the opposite is true. The mandrakes did nothing to help Rachel. It was Leah in verse 17 to 19 that actually conceives once again and gives birth to two more sons. Now she has six sons in total, plus finally a daughter in Dinah. Having produced six sons, Leah fully expected that Jacob would treat her with proper honor. It is a further example in this family of trading in things that should be above trade and resorting and restoring to troubled ways and half-heartedly to God. But on Rachel's part, it seems that the magic portion obviously failed. She had come to the end of herself and cried to God for children. It says now this, then God remembered Rachel and she gave birth to her first son, Joseph, at which point she prays God and she says, for he has taken away her distress or her disgrace. Joseph means may he add, signaling her desire to have more. And she will have more in chapter 35 at great cost of her life. You see, the name of each child born in this passage reflects the family condition. It's interesting. That's hardly That's a hard reality, and it's a reminder that God's people must put away envy and strife, which leads to bitterness and conflict, and accept the truth that God is dispensing his blessing in sovereign wisdom, in justice, and in compassion. God blesses us in spite of ourselves, that his grace and mercy be at work. So here's my last application. And it's something for us to consider. List some of the ways God has blessed you in spite of yourself. How has God blessed me in spite of myself? In spite of Leah, Rachel, Jacob, God is blessing them, moving his promise forward. And that is true for us. In spite of my bad decisions, how is God faithful and kind and gracious? And when I consider that, I can say, like Leah, praise the Lord. Self-dependency leads to turmoil, but divine grace redeems even the gravest situations. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as people who are naturally self-dependent, who cannot save ourselves from our predicament of sin. But thank you that you have sent Christ to us, who came who died and who rose again 
to redeem us from the life of death unto life and joy. I pray, Father, that you would work through your spirit in all of our hearts today from wherever we are, Lord, and draw us near to Christ. Strengthen us who are weak. Encourage those who are struggling. Save those who do not know you, Lord, that you would receive glory and that we would collectively say, praise the Lord. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.